Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Welcome to another edition, and I have John Nugent with me once again. How you doing, John? Glad to be back, even though we haven't left this room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the funnier I think about it, the longer it gets. <laughs> All right, so we are going to plunge into another topic related to the gospel of the kingdom, and that is this business of power and ministry in the kingdom of God. What does power and ministry in the kingdom of God look like over against power and service in the world system? And I will say as a qualifier that this particular episode is not for the faint in heart. If you are part of the clergy, you may have to take your heart medicine out at some point. We do not wish to offend anyone, but we are going to hold nothing back in terms of our own convictions and what we believe to be the Lord's way regarding power and ministry and authority. Although if you are one of the wolves in sheep's clothing, feel free to be offended. Yeah, we're not talking about you guys. Anyway, I think I'm going to allow John to roll this ball and start us out, and we'll see where this takes us. So this episode began as a conversation about, well, the observation of a pattern of ministry with Jesus and with Paul. Hmm. This, this notion of co-ministers, co-workers for the kingdom. Jesus sending his disciples out in pairs mm-hmm. uh, to proclaim the kingdom. Paul traveling in pairs to do his kingdom work. So Antioch is continuing that and sending Paul out with a with a partner in the gospel uh, to do his ministry. Uh, is this just a you know first century trend mm-hmm. that, or just you know a, a particular style that someone thought was helpful and worked in that time, or is there a deeper conviction about power in the kingdom of God? that is playing out in how ministers of the gospel do ministry. Mm. Uh, that they are not uh, one-man shows. Yeah. Uh, that there's something about the nature of the kingdom they're proclaiming and the nature of the kind of churches that they're forming, churches in which uh, leaders are not those who rule over them like the Gentiles, mm. uh, but serve. Is there something about the nature of what power does, especially when a lot of power goes into the hands of one person oh, yeah. what that does wow. to them and what the impact that it has on them due to the churches that they're trying to lead I think it's instructive that we have this concept in Jesus ministry throughout where he tells them don't call one another don't call any man rabbi or teacher for you have one who is your teacher referring to himself and that other text where he talks about you do not exercise authority like the Gentiles, for you all are brethren. And there, if you look at the actual Greek wording there, he's talking about top-down leadership, which in effect is hierarchical leadership, which isn't just a style of leadership, it's a structure of leadership, where you have this pyramid where you have some at the top and some at the bottom, and Jesus said it should not be so among you, but you all are brethren. 
In another place, he says, don't call any man your father. You know? Yeah, that's right. For you have one father in heaven. Uh, that's part of the, the previous text that I quoted. The same concept is echoed in three places. One in Peter, First Peter, where he talks to the elders of the church. I believe it's chapter 5. He's addressing the elders, and he doesn't say the elders who are over you. He says the elders who are among you. And Paul uses the same kind of language in Acts chapter 20. He's leaving the elders in Ephesus. Maybe you can look it up. See, folks, we're putting this podcast together with scissors and glue. (laughs) Uh, We do not prepare these things except for a brief conversation. It takes about three minutes, and then we plunge in. He talks about the overseers, again, who are among you, not over you. I'm actually looking for something else. Oh, are you? Okay. <laughs> John has left the trail here, folks, and he's not paying attention. <laughs> this is Acts 20, verse 28. He's speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, or the kingdom community in Ephesus, to be more accurate. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Not over which, but of which. And other translations say among which. So the elders are among are among the believers as believers themselves. They're not over the flock. And this echoes the teaching of Jesus. But there's another place and that's in Luke chapter 1 verse 52 we have Mary's song and she's talking about the coming of the kingdom and she says this God will bring the rulers down and he will lift up the humble so you have rulers who are at the top coming down and then you have the humble and the lowly being lifted up so if you can imagine that in your mind one class is going down another class is coming up so you have an equality and when john the baptist uncorked the gospel of the kingdom his opening message was along the same lines only he used it as a metaphor he said that the lord is going to bring all the valleys up every valley will be raised and then every mountain and hill will be lowered if you put all this together in the kingdom of god you have different giftings You have different measures of spiritual growth, but in terms of function, in terms of ministry, in terms of equality, everyone is at the same level. There is no group of people who are lording over the others. And unfortunately, around the third and fourth century, there grew up in the church universal a clergy system where there were some at the very top who were lording over and ruling those at the bottom and hence the clergy system was born and this was never the Lord's way and I argue that the clergy system this hierarchical pyramid of power comes not from the kingdom of God it does not come from the realm of God it comes from the world system because that's exactly how every aspect of the world system operates yeah it's interesting you you bring in the world system language I did a study of all the leadership terms in the New Testament and there is a cluster of leadership terms that's applied in the church and among the church and a different cluster of terms that is used of uh, rulers outside of the church, whether it's in the temple or in hmm. uh, the world system, so to speak, the Roman authorities. Uh, and it's interesting, among Christian leaders, you have the term elder, which the Greek word conveys people of experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word overseer which actually is a word that conveys safety 
those who keep safe, those mm-hmm. who are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, deacons, which conveys service. Mm-hmm. Uh, leaders in the book of Acts uh, is a term that conveys guidance, mm-hmm. brings guidance and direction. Uh, in Romans, you have the word attendance, which is those who they tend to something, they're devoted to a task. They just spend more time doing a certain task than other people who don't have as much time to devote to it. Uh, in First Corinthians, you have the word for uh, often translated as administrator, uh, which conveys organization. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you have uh, didaskalos, the word for teacher, which conveys imparts instruction. Mm-hmm. So there's a cluster of terms, mm-hmm. and, and all of them have to do with experience, safety, service, guidance, devotion, organization, and instruction. Then when you look at the terms used of other leaders that are referred to in the New Testament outside of the kingdom community, you have our case, the word for headship, mm. sometimes translated as rulers. Yeah. Uh, you have exousios, the word for authority, Yes. Uh, sometimes translated as powers. Um, you have, uh, for synagogue leadership, you have ark synagogas, uh, which means a head kind of leader. Uh, you have protos, which means first in status. Mm. You have uh, archhiteros, which is priestly headship. Mm. You have dunamis, the word for power, power, and kurios, the word for lordship. Mm-hmm. So this language of lordship, power, authority, mm-hmm. head, that's all <laughs> used of organizations, leaders of organizations other than the church. Outside the ecclesia. That's yeah. great, brother. And the only exception to this is that in the church, the word kurios is used of Jesus. Right. He is Lord. We do He's, have a Lord, which is Jesus Christ. We have Lord. We have a head. And what's so fascinating yeah. about that, too, is that in the institutional church world, by and large, all right, the exceptions are rarer than chicken molars. But by and large, in the institutional church world, it is very common to say that the pastor is the head of the church. Oh, yeah. Of course, Jesus is the head, but I'm the underhead. Well, you do not find that in the New Testament. The concept is not there. The language is not there. The other thing is this business of authority, that certain people who fill certain sociological slots, a la positions, have authority over other believers and if you take that word exousia the word for authority you will never find in the new testament where one believer is given authority or has authority over another believer it's only god who has authority over someone listening to this is thinking or assuming that we're promoting rebellion amongst god's people and that we should just tell your pastor that he doesn't have a right to exist and and that no believer should listen to another believer That's not at all what we're saying because what you do find in the New Testament is this concept of mutual submission. Mm -hmm. And every believer ought to be willing to submit to others, especially those who are more seasoned, a la, that's what the word elder means, someone who is more seasoned and experienced, to give their voice more weight because they're more mature in Christ. That doesn't mean that it's a blanket, universal commandment to obey them or to do whatever they say we had a movement back in the 70s that abused that whole concept and if an elder said i want you to come over to my house and wash my car then the believers had to do really? that and they controlled every aspect of their life it was called the discipleship movement the shepherding movement it was horrible it was an abuse of authority and many people still hold to that doctrine in fact there is still a doctrine that is alive it's called 
covering, that every believer must have a covering, meaning another person who is over them. I took dead aim at that doctrine in a book entitled Reimagining Church. The second part is all dedicated to this whole issue, and one of the chapters is called Who is Your Covering? And by the way, it's not just Jesus alone, meaning I'm this solo Christian living my own solo Christian life and Jesus is my head and I only listen to him. That's not what the New Testament teaches. We are in submission to one another as a local body of believers. God willing, you can have that. And Christ is the head of that local body of believers. So it's submission to one another and Christ, not to a group of people who call themselves clergy. Yeah, I love the way Paul puts this in uh, Ephesians 4. It's one of my favorite leadership passages. He says, when, uh, when Christ ascended into heaven, he gave gifts to his people. And that some would be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Their function, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Yeah. Like They serve the body, so the body is doing the work of ministry. And it goes on to say, so that all of us can come to a unity of faith and a knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of mm. Christ. So God has given the church leaders, yes. but all of these leaders exist not to do the work of ministry on behalf of the body, right. but to build up the body of Christ so that each member is doing its part and serving and leading out in the area of its giftedness. What many people hear when they heard you just say that is that, okay, this means that the pastor and the staff and the clergy are to equip me so that I can go out and be an evangelist and share the gospel with other people. He talks about every joint supplying and for the building up of the body. That's referring to members of the body of Christ building one another up. That's right having ministry to one another and when we look at the new testament closely we see that the first century church had meetings where everyone contributed and shared it wasn't just a few people who did all of the ministry that there was a common sharing among the believers one to another every joint supplying and that's what these ministry gifts the ascension gifts in ephesians 4 are to do they're to equip god's people to do that kind of ministry not just you know outside the church walls when you're with your co-workers and you know i'm there to equip you to breed sheep you know i'm a shepherd shepherd don't breed sheep sheep breed sheep you know there's that argument where mm -hmm. pastors say we're not to evangelize we're to get you to evangelize because we're shepherds and you're sheep <laughs> Which is a ridiculous concept. The other thing I wanted to point out, too, in adding to what you said, is that there is leadership, and there are those that provide guidance, and there are those who have ministry speaking gifts that may be greater than others, but they are among the body. They're not over the body. And that's a huge distinction. And the way the world operates is the leaders are over. And, you know, the people who are under must obey and submit to the authority of those who are over. And you do not see that paradigm in the New Testament. No. I, I think that's what Jesus and Peter echoing Jesus is saying. Like, Gentile rulers, they do the kind of leadership thing where people rule over other people. Yes. We don't do that kind of thing. Like, we that do power that. dynamic is not operative among us. The power we know is the power of weakness. <laughs> The power of love, the yes. power of service, uh, the power of turn the other cheek. There's yes. a different kind of power among us that if if we keep advocating these kingdom values of first shall be last and last shall be first and leaders will serve and, and turn the other cheek and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and endure under suffering, like 
to have a body that lives that way, but to give them a kind of leadership that is top-down authoritarian is a confusion of means and message. Uh, the kind of leadership you have is shaping a certain kind of body and power is going to function throughout that body in a way that's consistent with their leadership structures. And so it's no wonder preachers who you know, accept great power being given to them right, to, to be head of the flock have a hard time not ending up with leaders that want top-down power. Exactly. <laughs> Elders who want top-down power. That's right. Because when that kind of power enters the system, it's producing disciples who acclimate to that kind of power. We have to think about what is the nature of the kingdom. That's what the kingdom community is supposed to be like. And the leadership exists to serve that dynamic. And it can't undermine that dynamic by giving them a worldly kind of power to ensure that the church exerts a non-worldly kind of power in their lives. Absolutely. The tragedy is that today, most of what passes for church or what we call churches, the distribution of power, the operation of power, the leveraging of authority is identical in the church system as it is in the world system, because that's where it came from. It was borrowed from the world system, brought right into the church. John, I have seen and I have been part of communities, kingdom communities, where there was oversight, there's leadership oversight, the way I define an overseer or an elder, I believe they're the same thing. And a shepherd is the same thing too. Shepherd, overseer, and elder terms that are interchangeable to describe the same ministry, I believe. But the elders are the more seasoned saints. They're the ones who pray with their eyes open. They're really there almost as watchdogs to care for the saints who are hurting, who have needs if there's a crisis. But the ministry should come from all of the body. Paul says, I would that you all prophesy one by one, for example. I would that you all be teachers. That doesn't mean that every believer has a real articulation where they could speak for 30 minutes and be comprehended. <laughs> but every believer has a part in ministry. It's not that these are the ministers and we're the consumers of the ministry and we just listen and you know our only ministry is to go out and share the gospel with our coworkers. There's ministry in the body that is to be done. And, and I've been in meetings that have been many, I mean, hundreds of meetings that have been patterned after 1 Corinthians 14. When you come together, every one of you have a psalm, it's a hymn, has a revelation, has a prophetic word, or whatever. And everybody in that body, because they were equipped to do this, and this is part of the equipping, I believe, where those who have more experience and are gifted in this way can equip the saints to the work of the ministry because they were equipped every single one of them to the young Christians to the older Christians were sharing something of Christ in that meeting and it was just an explosion of life and you got to see on display what a gathering of God's people looks like when Jesus Christ is the functional head by the Holy Spirit operating through the body those kinds of meetings are glorious yeah. uh, now it doesn't happen every week <laughs> And it does take preparation. Everyone in the body needs to prepare. But today we have a situation in most churches, which is completely different. You come to listen. And the only expression of ministry you have maybe is if you're in a charismatic church, you lift your hands while you sing. And if you're in a Baptist church, you keep your hands to your side when you sing. And that's pretty much it, other than throwing money in the offering plate. But you don't participate. It's really a show that you watch. 
and that you engage with your ears. There is a place for that kind of ministry where certain ones will speak to God's people, a local gathering, but this other kind of meeting I'm talking about, an open participatory meeting, is what I believe they did in the first century, and it can be captured and has been captured in various fellowships today, but it shows you what the kingdom of God is, that just as John the Baptist preached, the valleys have been raised and the mountains have been lowered. And so that there is this equality, not in gifting, we're all not gifted equally, but in terms of the responsibility of ministry, the priesthood of all believers, you know, not the priesthood of some believers, but the priesthood of all believers kicks in and that can be expressed. And that's part of this beautiful girl called Ecclesia that we've been talking about. And this has, you know, deep roots, I think, in the Old Testament. As we think about this temptation to take the most gifted among us and place them above us and give them authority over us hmm. because we feel like that would be most expedient that would be most effective I mean that was if you look at how God structured Israel in Deuteronomy uh, he made Israel a federation of 12 independent tribes each of which had their own Levites among their tribe each of them had their own elders a plurality of elders each of them had prophets among them and they had these different functionaries. There's a plurality of tribes with a plurality of leadership in all of the tribes. And that was a, a radical form of governance that the nations would never have seen before Israel. And the Israelites wanted kingship like the nations. Right? Mm -hmm. They wanted, Bingo. it's not okay for all the tribes to be equal. We need one head tribe. There you go. And it's not okay for all leaders to be equal. We need a king above all leaders. Mm. We need all these different leadership offices, prophets, priests, kings, underneath the auspices of one leader, the king. And when, when God's people demand a king from Samuel, and you know Samuel turns to God and he feels personally rejected, uh, he's a judge. That's another one. There were judges, right? Mm -hmm. Plurality of judges. Yeah. And uh, God says, now this isn't, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting God's rule over them. You know, he wants to be their one king. And the way God exercises his rule is through a plurality of human rulers mm -hmm. who have different gifts and serve in the ways um, that God has gifted them. And so Israel takes this, you know, several hundred year detour into kingship like the nations where they have a single head over the mm. nation conflating the tribes and and bringing making the levites into uh temple musicians or you know or um royal musicians for the royal court and robbing them of the key function they had as the bearers of god's word <laughs> among god's people um and so jesus comes along and uh, what does he do uh, he kind of weans them off of this kingship like the nation's kind of rulership. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do that that That's way right. in the church. Right. It's going to be the direction God was taking Israel in the beginning that Israel rejected. Mm. And so it's a sad story in church history that we went right back to kingship like the nations, where you have a, sure. head, a head of the church that's underneath yeah. Christ as head of the church, and that all other leaders in the church are underneath that human head. Yeah. And it's structured just like the nations. Just like the nations. The Old Testament should have taught us that story. Wow, that is right on. But as Jeremiah the prophet said, you do these things which are against my will, and then the sentence goes like this, but my people love to have it so. There's something about having someone do all the ministry and being a passive spectator 
that takes all the pressure and the responsibility off. But that is not the way of the kingdom of God. That's hiding your talent rather than using your talent. The way that this manifests itself, and I love how you brought out the kingship story, because God was basically saying, you're rejecting me from being the king. I want to be the king. I'm the king. Why do you want a human king? Because the other nations are doing it. It has to do with this issue of co-working. And in the New Testament, as you pointed out, and I've written about this in several articles and other places, because it really burns in me. You have the pattern, it's unbroken, in the ministry of Jesus and even in the ministry of Paul of Tarsus. When Jesus brought the Twelve to him, you see the recording of the Twelve. They're always in pairs. Mm-hmm. And that's not an accident because the Lord was building into the DNA of that kingdom community, the embryonic expression of the ecclesia, building into it this principle of apostles, apostolic workers, people who minister, travel, co-working. And then you also have it in Paul, when Paul, as you mentioned, when Paul travels, he's first he goes to Galatia with Barnabas, then he goes off to Greece with Silas, And then he ends up in Ephesus and he reduplicates the ministry of Jesus Christ in Galilee. He reduplicates it in Ephesus where he has eight men that he trains. And when they're mentioned, they're all mentioned in pairs too, which Mm -hmm. is fascinating. Even before you get to uh, Acts chapter 13, you have Peter and John, Peter and John, Peter and John. So there's this principle of co-working leaders particularly apostolic people, people who travel, written in the bloodstream of God's universe where there is this reality of co-working. And that is very much against the world system, which is all about the one guy at the top and people below him, right? There's got to be one at the top. There has to be one. He's got to get the glory. He's got to get the authority. And unfortunately, John, in my observation, because I've had conversations with leaders about this, There are so few men who are in ministry today who are willing to co-work with other people who are in ministry. They're just not interested. The solo act is much easier because you make all the decisions, you call all the shots. There is not this demand to submit to another person and have them submit to you, mutual submission. And also, there is not the sharing of the glory. And I know that, unfortunately, unfortunately, jealousy runs deep in the house of the Lord, especially with people who are gifted. Because if someone is just as gifted as they are or more gifted, there's a threat there that they're not going to be the top dog, you know, in the eyes of others. And all of this stuff is what you see in the world. Mm. It's the world system being brought right into the house of God. And I believe this is why the kingdom of God, in many respects, suffers. What if, just think about this, what if all of the people who have ministries today who are making an impact, a spiritual impact, would humble themselves to be willing to co-work with others, you know, who are on the same page, you know, who are doing the same kind of work? I mean, that would be an incredible movement forward, I believe. I believe the kingdom of God would advance so much further for so many reasons, let alone it being the principles of divine life found in God himself yeah I agree and I think I think we gravitate toward um, kingship in the church (laughs) single leadership uh, because it comes easy it comes natural we see it in the world and we see uh, that it's kind of efficient in certain ways 
Sure. Um, just to have one person where the buck stops there and they're going to make the decision and that's going to settle all the disputes. And I think we cheat ourselves there. Uh, I'm, I'm not convinced it is more efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a part of a church that practices shared decision making. The elders are awesome. not a decision making body in our church. Awesome. Uh, the elders are people in our body that keep the word of God central to body life. That's their function. And, and keeping the word of God at the center of body life is enough work for any team of people. Yeah. <laughs> that God has gifted the church with so many other leaders uh, who do who carry out and organize the functions of ministry and help make decisions about money and things like that. But we found as a body that, you know, up front it seems like more efficient to have one person make the decision or a small group of people make all the decisions. But then they spend the next six months uh, dealing with damage control from all of the people who were alienated by the decisions yeah, that they made. Right, There's so exactly. much pastoral follow-up that has to happen to maintain the, the unity of the body uh, that was point. compromised when we gave authority to a select few. Yeah. And so we make decisions together as a body, and we found that initially the process takes a little bit longer, but once we've come to unity and consensus as a body, the body moves forward in unity and we don't spend the next six months cleaning up the yeah. mess and because people are so inexperienced in this kind of notion of power shared like the power is god's power right, <laughs> right? and it's shared among us equally the spirit of god yeah. right that because we don't experience it in the world we need we need practice in church yep. like, there is a learning curve yep uh, a different way of, of leading that shares responsibility rather than lords over responsibility mm-hmm. And uh, a body that takes the time and commits to the discipline will become gifted at it. They'll become experienced at it. And then people who come into the church from the world will have to learn it. Uh, But the body is already functioning that way, and so they can see it in action and assimilate into it. And, And we found that it has become far more efficient not to give power to a few to make all the decisions. Far more efficient even though the world will tell you it's yeah, less efficient. Exactly. Well, people in the world will even say, and Christians who have adopted this model, which is worldly, folks, will say it's impossible. You have to have someone at the top. And I, I do think it gives the appearance of being convenient, and maybe in the short run it is in certain cases, but all of the collateral damage that you're speaking of is often not identified as the fruit of single leadership. I'll give you one example that came to mind when you were talking. I have met many Christians who have been victims of a lot of pain in the institutional church. I mean, they're just bleeding all over the place. Years later, they've been hurt by being part of an institutional church structure. Well, in every case, in every single case, there's not one case I can think of where this wasn't true. In every case, those people who were hurt got involved in some kind of ministry or service in the church. Either they were part of the worship team, either they were part of the leadership staff, either they were Sunday school teachers, or they were the head of some program underneath someone else. They got involved in the system. They became a cog in the system. And because of all the Byzantine politics that goes on, which is endemic to that structure, they got burned. And I've never met a Christian, and I've been in many institutional churches. I grew up in the institutional church. I was never hurt by anybody because I didn't get involved in any kind of leadership. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you're going to go in and sit in a pew and listen to somebody preach, 
and then go home and leave, you're not going to be hurt by the pastor. But it's people who get involved in that system, and it's just endemic to that structure that there's going to be hurt and pain. I have to say this, those of you who are thinking that, quote-unquote, house church is the answer, and if you go into a house church, you're never going to be hurt, well, think again, because house churches can be even more toxic than institutional churches, and that's another conversation that I've had before and I've written about. I won't go into that, but you are right. The point is is that top-down leadership is not, in the long run at least, convenient and uh, your example there is, is great. And I've seen the same thing as well in my experience. So an idea hit me. This, and I've never thought this idea before. So it's, it's coming out fresh. For churches who have staff and pay yeah. staff, what do you think it would look like for a hiring team to interview people together? Like to hire a couple of people mm. uh, to carry out a function. And they're interviewed together. Uh, to think about this is a shared ministry helping equip the saints for the work of ministry that you know if we're bringing you on staff it's to equip us for the work of ministry not to do the work of ministry for mm. us and we're so concerned that our staff doesn't fall into leadership like the nations that we want to hire you in pairs that's interesting i like the idea i mean it's certainly moving the ball forward you know because you're talking about in that particular structure where there's paid ministry and all I think that would be definitely uh, several leaps forward. And it's a way of sending them the message. You're not in charge here. Yeah. And you weren't brought in here to be in, in charge of the other. And I think it would screen out the people who want the power and to be on top. That the hiring process itself embodies the principle of two-by-two two ministry. Mm -hmm. um, that we want to try that in the church. I, I'd be curious to see a church try that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if someone hasn't. One thing we did in research, kind of yeah. uh, thinking about this theme of two-by-two two ministry that we see in Jesus and in Paul, is we kind of looked at the authorship of many of Paul's letters. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 it, you know says that this letter was written by Paul and Sosthenes. In 2 Corinthians 1, 1, it says that it was written by Paul and Timothy. Uh, Philippians, again, written by Paul and Timothy. Colossians, written by Paul and and Timothy. First and Second Thessalonians were written by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Mm. Philemon was written by Paul and Timothy. Uh, you mentioned that Galatians was written by Paul and all the brethren with him. Yes. Um, so there's this team approach to the writing. Yes. And, you know, we can theorize how much was this, you know, 70% Paul and, you know, 30% right, sure. Timothy or, you know, but I think it's fascinating when we think about who wrote most of the letters of the New Testament we don't say Timothy. Yeah. Because I think next to Paul, he's written more letters than anyone else. Yeah. Right? We have one, Absolutely. two, three, four, five, six. He's written more letters than Peter, more letters than John. He is the second to most letter written author in the New Testament. See the kind of things you learn by listening to this podcast. And by the <laughs> way, all that research was John. He did that on the fly as we were talking about co-working. But I will correct one thing he said. Paul wrote 97% of all those letters. <laughs> Timothy wrote 3%. But having said that, that's a great illustration because you even see in the letter writing the principle of co-working. So those of you who are in ministry solo those of you who are celebrity preachers, you go all over the world and preach and it's just you, I want you to consider this challenge to humble yourself and be willing to co-work 
with other brothers in the Lord's work. And the same goes with sisters who are in the Lord's work. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is how the kingdom of God operates. And the world system does not operate like that, so may we not adopt the ways of the world when it comes to power and ministry. Speaking of the open participatory meeting that we talked about, where every member shares the Lord in a community gathering of the body of Christ, the image of the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Ingathering, is a beautiful illustration of this, where God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, were given the land as an inheritance. And each tribe was given a different portion of the land. And so some parts of the land was very rich in olives. And so they created olive oil out of that part of the land. Some parts of the land were rich in iron and bronze. And so they created weapons and resources out of the the iron and the bronze. Some parts of the land were rich in water and others figs and so forth. Well, we have milk and honey. And we also have many of the other uh, items that were in the land. It was a a rich, full land, as you know. You've studied this extensively. But what would happen is during the Feast of Tabernacles, or ingathering, all of Israel would take what they have reaped from the land, with the good produce from the land, whether it's figs or olives or water or bronze or things made out of iron and so forth. And they would go to Jerusalem and then they would have an exhibition where they would display all of the riches that they had mined from the land and share it with one another. And at the very end, they would have a heave offering where they would heave it up to the Lord. And I think that's just a beautiful picture of God's people mining the real land, which is Jesus Christ, his inexhaustible riches, which Paul uses that term in Ephesians, the inexhaustible riches of Christ, partaking of him, and then coming together with other believers and displaying what we have received from the Lord, say that given week or that given month. Mm. And all of us have a different part. All of us have mined the land. We've, we've reaped the riches of the land, and now we're sharing that with one another. And it's just a beautiful picture of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14. When you come together, every one of you has something of the Lord to share. And then he goes on to say, if an unbeliever walks in your midst, he will see that God is among you. If all of you share Christ, that is, prophesy with one another, everyone functioning in the body of Christ. It's a beautiful picture of the kingdom. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.